Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Ezra, chapters 7, 9, 10, selected verses. Now, after all this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest, this Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given to him. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of the daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the land. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled my hair from my head and beard, and and I sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered round me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garments and cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hands of the kings of the land, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but he has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, the son of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord, and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong to do it. 
Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the foreign wives. This is God's word. Thanks, Susan. Uh, Good morning. My name is Jonathan Winfrey. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. Uh, We are in a series, uh, as many of you are aware, where we're walking through the the Old Testament, rather. Uh, We've come to uh, the book of Ezra, and one of the things we've seen over and over again uh, since the beginning uh, of the story is that God has a mission, and he has a people for that mission, and despite the setbacks, the foibles, the foolishness that we've seen over and over again from the people, God's plan continues to stand. He remains faithful to carry it out, uh, and, and, and nothing seems to be able to stand in the way of him moving forward and accomplishing that. But we're entering into a period of transition, uh, both inside the story of the Bible and outside of it. Uh, and we're going to see that this week and, and next week in terms of uh, the historical context, which is important. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah, Nehemiah together cover uh, about 100 years of very significant history in the life of uh, Israel. As the exiles from Judah are allowed to return to the homeland after they have been held captive in Babylon. And I hope a little bit of backstory will help make sense of this. See, the Persians had defeated the Babylonians about 50 years after Jerusalem was conquered. And the people were exiled. So now you've got the Persians on top of the heap. And they are all for pluralism. That is, conquered territories could worship as they chose. uh, So long as they paid their tax bill. The problem was, you have this portion of the empire, Egypt, that decided to rebel against Persia, and so being the shrewd politicians that they were, the Persian kings decided that we needed to shore up this land called Judah as a buffer zone against this rebellion in Egypt. And so they began to say, go back, Israelites, to your homeland Go back and rebuild your temple. Go back and rebuild, rebuild your city. And the thought was, if the Hebrews have their temple and their city, they'll be compliant, right? Maybe they'll even support us in our rule. So that's the historical context that really made it possible in the providence of God for Jerusalem to get rebuilt and resettled, both the temple and, and the walls, as we'll see next week. And the book of Ezra describes two waves of exiles returning. The first under the king Zerubbabel, uh, who was appointed by the Persians, who rebuilds the temple. And that's really the first six chapters of the book of Ezra. Uh, Obviously, there's ten chapters. We don't have time to read them all uh, or go through the whole book. But that's what happens in the first kind of half. The second wave arrives some 50 years later under the leadership of Ezra. Okay? Now, we're not introduced to Ezra until chapter 7, as you'll see there in your worship folder, the very beginning of the passage. He arrives in the wake of the temple having been rebuilt and worship having been reinstituted. He's described as a a scribe. He's from a pretty prominent pedigree within Israel. As you see there, he's a descendant ultimately of Aaron, the brother of Moses, 
the chief priest, the first commissioned priest. And even though worship in the temple and the feasts were being celebrated well before Ezra arrives, verses 5 and 10 of chapter 7 help us make sense a little bit of what happens in chapters 9 and 10. Look there um, at, uh, at those verses. Okay, uh, Ezra comes... He was skilled in the law of Moses, then jumped down to 10. He had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. And what we see is that when the light of the word of God shines into dark nooks and crannies, you have to deal with it. Ezra is loaded up with that as he comes to the the scene, as he comes to survey what's been going on. He had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So it stands to reason, as he looks out over the life and practice of the community of faith, he would hold the Lord's law up against what he saw and measure. And the result is a community that becomes centered on the word, called to live under the word. And that's uh, where... I'm hoping to go this morning. You see there in your worship folder the outline. And we're going to walk through primarily chapters 9 and 10 as we look at first the problem of faithlessness. Okay, it is a community problem. We're going to look at that. How does that how, how does that get illustrated in this passage and, and how how do we connect it with our lives? Where is that a problem for us? And then secondly, as a response to that, both his emotional response and his prayer as a priest. And how does that point us to how we combat faithlessness, not only in our own lives, but in each other's lives? And then lastly, where, after he calls the people, after he confesses on behalf of the people, where does that leave them? Where do they get the motivation to, as they say in chapter 10, we have broken faith, let us confess, let us make a covenant, let us do the will of the Lord. Where, do, where, where does the motivation for that come from? Okay, so those three things. First, faithlessness. Okay, uh, some of you may have noticed that the word faithlessness is used several times, five times to be exact, to describe this particular sin of intermarriage that's common among the people of Israel as Ezra comes on the scene. The Hebrew word actually doesn't refer to a particular type of sin. It's used to describe the nature of the sin. So it would be like you're reading through this, and if you read Hebrew or you heard this in the original language, it would be the sin was serious. This serious sin that the people were doing bothered, concerned it had, uh, Ezra. It, this serious sin has made it all the way to the chief men. And what's amazing to think about is that all the while that the people are celebrating the feasts, they are worshiping in the temple, okay? And we didn't read it, but if you go back into chapter 6, at the end of chapter 6, the temple's finished and dedicated and Passover is celebrated. All the while that that stuff's going on, they've married and had children with foreigners. The law specifically forbid this practice, okay? In a number of places, Deuteronomy 7 would be an example. If you're taking notes, you want to write that down, refer to that later, Uh, I'd encourage you to do that. So why did it take Ezra coming on the scene to call attention to the problem? Okay? The first wave, uh, 50 years, 
and Ezra comes on the scene. The first wave comes, 50 years pass. They've been at this for a long time. Well, I think part of the reason it takes Ezra to come on the scene lies in the nature of this epidemic of sin. Why is this word faithlessness used? What is the deeper problem that the practice of intermarriage points to? Well, the Lord's reasoning for forbidding this was that foreign influences would infiltrate and corrupt the holiness of his people. He was warning them. He warned them early on. When you get into the land, destroy the idols of the peoples of the land. Do not mix with their women or have children with them, lest you be tempted, sucked in to worship their gods. Part of the witness of the people of God to the surrounding nations was the fact that they were set apart. They were to be unique. They had been delivered from slavery, not by the gods of the nations but by Yahweh himself. The very first commandment of what I like to call the Big Ten, you know? You shall have no other gods before me. Taking foreigners into their homes would open them up to being introduced to other gods. Other gods that could potentially end up coming before the Lord. As in more important than the Lord. As in more influential than the Lord, right? Mixing something pure with something else dilutes its purity, okay? We all know that. Knowingly entering into marriages with pagan worshipers revealed Israel's faithlessness. And to this day, civil so-called mixed marriages, uh, particularly between Jewish Jewish, uh, girls and Arab men, is prohibited in the state of Israel. Uh, And there are vigilante gangs in certain Jewish communities that have taken it upon themselves to, shall we say, citizens arrest uh, situations that they come upon where Jewish girls are led into uh, marrying or, or, or at least entering into relationships with Arab men because it's considering a pollution of the Jewish race. So something of that is still inherent in the people to this day. Why? Because they were distinct, they were unique, they were called to be separate. But not only that, Yahweh demanded loyalty to him and him alone. He said, you shall have no other gods before me. What did he say right before that? I am the Lord who rescued you. You were enslaved, you had no chance. I came and picked you up. I delivered you. Therefore, why waste your time worshiping something else? Why waste your time worrying that you might not be uh, getting the, the, the pleasure of another supposed God or deity? The opposite of faithlessness is, of course, faithfulness. A life full of faith and courage and trust in the provision and rule of the Lord, that was what he demanded from the people. It's believing that what God has said is of ultimate value ultimate authority, and supremely trustworthy. One commentator said it this way, the cancer of impurity within the community threatens the community's existence from within. The marriages, these these foreign marriages, threaten to steal Israel's heart away from loyalty to I am. It's frightening to consider that the people of Israel could worship the Lord and at the same time, okay, Picture this, before Ezra comes on the scene, they're going to the temple, they're offering sacrifices, they're celebrating the feast days, 
And yet, presumably, they go home and their house is filled with pagan gods that their wives have brought in. What Ezra is confronting is pluralism. Yahweh was one God among many. So the people offered their sacrifices. They did their duty. But they were also seeking to honor the Canaanite, Moabite, and even Egyptian gods as well. It's like trying to cover all your bases, right? Like saying, I know there are things that the Lord wants me to do. There's sacrifices, there's duties, there's expectations, and I'm going to do those. But what if, what if other gods like, like Molech or Baal have demands too? What that is is unbelief at the end of the day. See, the crux of the problem was that intermarriage was leading the people away from exclusive loyalty to Yahweh. And so it was possible, it was possible to perform the religious duties of the community of faith and your heart not be completely devoted to Yahweh. And I would say to us, it is possible for us to come here and to participate and our heart not be completely devoted, it be divided, it be ultimately faithless. Whenever we open our hearts up to being captivated or won over by something greater or other than God, we risk committing spiritual adultery. That, that was so much of what was driving God's point here. I've rescued you. I've wedded myself to you. For you to go off and pursue foreign wives and, and, and risk bringing foreign gods into your home, it's like being tempted to commit adultery. It's like cheating on me. Why would you want to cheat on me? I've not cheated on you. And we invite that temptation. It's Again, it's why God told the people, destroy the idols of the nations when you come into the promised land. It's why Ezra says here that the foreign wives must be put out, put away, separate yourself. It's why Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, do what to it? Yeah, you know, mas- massage the... the, the uh, you know, massage it out, you know, put a, put, a, put a light to it and hope that maybe that, you know, burns off whatever's uh, causing it to, to not work right. He says, pluck it out. He says, it'd be better for you to enter heaven without an eye or without a hand than hell fully put together. Our hearts are deceitful and desperately sick, and yet we often, all the... It, all the time, really, in multiple ways, risk spiritual adultery. We risk faithlessness. It may not be through intermarriage, but there are a lot of ways that we allow the influences outside of us to corrupt what Paul said in our our community Bible reading this past week, a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Our faithlessness is half-hearted loyalty. It is possible for you to come here to perform religious duties that we expect from you, to worship, to participate in a community group, to volunteer, to come to various events in the life of the church, and yet your heart be divided. So, how does Ezra handle the report? As he surveys the situation, how does he react? Remember, he's a scribe, he's a priest, he's a student of the law. His reaction is tied to how seriously he takes the word of the Lord and how burdened, don't miss this, how burdened he is for the people of God. So look at his reaction and his prayer. Following the news of faithlessness that is pervading the community, Ezra responds. 
And his response drives his prayer. So I want to take a look at both of those in turn, okay? His emotional response and then his prayer. First, his emotional response. Look, uh, look at uh, chapter 9, verse 3, okay, and following. He says, when I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak, and I pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. He is angry, he is appalled, he's grieved, he tears his clothes, he pulls hair out of his beard and head, ouch, and falls on his knees. And the people around him see this, and they respond with trembling. But notice what verse 4 says. They don't tremble at the news. What are they trembling at? They're trembling at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles. When's the last time you pulled hair off your head at the report of rampant sin in your home, in yourself, in the church? Parents, uh, there's a healthy response to the sin of your children. It may not be this. I'm not advocating that necessarily. Although I'd be impressed if you could pull this off. Um, but, but there's a healthy response to sin in your children Anger, being appalled, being shocked at some of the the sin that our children commit. But if it stops there, it can easily become unhealthy and unproductive. When that anger moves you to grief, however, okay, it can bear fruit and bring healing. One of the commentators said this, our greatest security against sin is to be shocked by it. And I was, that, that hit me. Most of us are appalled by the sin of others right? Uh, If I listed off a few things, uh, you'd be appalled, or as you remember them, ISIS executing that American journalist when we hear of teenagers being gunned down in gang violence, or a man hiring a mercenary to murder his wife, we're, we're shocked and we're appalled by that, right? But what about our sin? What about your sin? Does your sin shock you? Does it appall you? Does it make you want to tear your hair out? I think Ezra's emotional response gives us a sense of what the Word of God being hidden in our heart, having studied it, having meditated on it, having sought to live our lives underneath it, it gives us a sense of what that does when we hear about sin. To hate it, for it to shock us, for it to appall us, for it to grieve us. But not only that, look at his prayer. Look at what happens as he responds Following his response, he owns the community's sin. His first statement says, I and my. But the rest of his prayer, as he's getting set up, all the way through to verse 15, which we didn't read, he continues over and over to say, we and our. He's appalled at the report, and yet his confession to the Lord includes himself. Now why? Well, it was the job of the priest in Old Testament Israel to mediate between God and the people. He prayed on behalf of the people. He sacrificed on behalf of the people. He spoke and applied God's word on behalf of the people. So, in this case, he prays and owns the sin of intermarriage. He identifies with the idolaters. He's willing to be labeled faithless on behalf of the community. Now, why? That seems unfair, right? Why should he call himself something he's not? Well, quite simply, living within community, your sin affects me. 
my sin affects you. The Bible calls the church the body of Christ. An implication of that is that how I live my life and make decisions affects your life. And how you live your life and make decisions affects me. But our culture has so captured us with rugged individualism that we read Ezra's prayer and we find it weird or we find it unfair or we find it silly that he would own, that he would name himself faithless alongside of these people when he has come in and seen the sin and not participated in it. But the fact that he's doing that is significant because he's pointing us to the work of a greater priest. One who has also set his heart to study and do the law of the Lord and teach others in Israel. See, Jesus Christ is the priest par excellence. He went to such great lengths to own our sin that he, the Bible says, became our sin. And his identification with us, his people, meant that he was treated as one of us, as we deserved to be treated. And the good news of the gospel is that he was treated as a traitor and enemy of God the Father, so that I could then in turn be treated as only he deserved, as a child and an heir of the promises of God with an all-excess pass to the throne room of the universe. Ezra is modeling something else for us, though. I, I think he's discipling us in how to be a priest to one another. And if we in the church are connected as the Bible teaches we are, then the priesthood of all believers becomes crucial to our life together. You saw it on the slide at the end of the women's uh, luncheon um, uh, slideshow. Come join us as we share life together. Or we enjoy sharing life together. Something to that effect. And one practice, I just want to highlight one. There's many we could do. But one that's very powerful and utterly countercultural is the ministry of intercession. Ezra points us to the work of Christ yet again here. He is the epitome of an intercessor. He is interceding on behalf of the people as he confesses their sin to God, his sin alongside of them. Uh, and I want to, to quote for you from uh, a book called Life Together uh, by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a Lutheran minister who was martyred by the Nazis. And he says this about intercession. Uh, just listen. I, a Christian fellowship lives and exists by the intercession of its members for one another, or it collapses. I can no longer condemn or hate a brother for whom I pray, no matter how much trouble he causes me. There is no dislike, no personal tension, no estrangement that cannot be overcome by intercession as far as our side of it is concerned. Now, how does this happen? Intercession means no more than to bring our brother into the presence of God, to see him under the cross of Jesus as a poor human and sinner in need of grace. And now listen to this. Then everything in him that repels us falls away. We see him in all his destitution and need. His need and his sin become so heavy and oppressive that we feel them as our own. And we can do nothing else but pray. To make intercession means to grant our brother the same right that we have received, namely, to stand before Christ and share in his mercy. See, interceding for you helps me to see all the ways I'm just like you. Rather than allowing me to focus on how different we are, how sinful you are and holy I am, or how I would never do what you're doing or have done, 
but not to mention, it fills my mind with you. It causes me to begin to meditate on you, to think about you, your needs, your struggles, your successes. And it's a very simple and tangible expression of community life together. And one of the goals for us as a church, whether it's in a community group, a discipleship group, or even an impromptu gathering outside on the bench after worship, is that we would be for one another as deeply and as intimately as we can be. And intercession is a very practical, tangible way to see that happen. Ezra's prayer, uh, which, fought, which, uh, which is in chapter 9, his confession, his weeping, his casting of himself before God produces something. And that's why we have chapter 10. But, but what do the people hear that motivates them toward corporate confession and produces a desire to covenant with the Lord? And that brings us to the, the third point. How can this leader in chapter 10, Shechaniah, say, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this? We've seen the problem of faithlessness revealed a divided loyalty among the people within their hearts. And then we've seen Ezra's reaction in prayer as he responds to this, he owns the sin of the people. But now I want to answer the question, what's got them to chapter 10, verse 2? What happens that gets them to this point? Well, to answer this, you've got to go back into the prayer. We didn't include it, but I'll read to you verse 15, the very end of chapter 9. If you have a Bible and you see there, you can follow along. Otherwise, just listen. He says, O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped As it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, and none can stand before you because of this. Ezra leaves them in a dilemma. The Lord is righteous and just. We are guilty. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, make no mistake, this is the issue every human being faces. The Bible says, We are guilty, God is just. We are sinful, God is holy. Well, if that's true, then what hope do you have? And the answer lies in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 9, the last little bit that we read of chapter 9. If you're struggling with faithlessness this morning, if your heart is overrun with competing loyalties, if you're in bondage to something that you just cannot seem to overcome, or maybe you find yourself today without any form of faith, the good news is that Ezra says, verse 8, favor has been shown by the Lord our God. God meets our faithlessness with his faithfulness. And as the psalmist said in our call to worship, everything God does is done in faithfulness to his people. And here's how. In verse 8, Ezra says, He has shown his favor to us by giving us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that he may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving. Well, the Hebrew word for secure hold meant tent peg, which was driven into the ground to anchor a tent. Or it could also mean a nail that was secured in the wall that could be used for hanging things. Ezra says, God has provided it in his holy place, which was presumably the temple. Well, for us, as Christians, we have a secure hold. We have an anchor for the soul. In the book of Hebrews, in the New Testament, the writer says that because Jesus Christ has gone ahead of us, Into the presence of God, as our priest, we have a tent peg too. Our confidence and our security comes from the fact that Jesus was nailed to the cross, cast out, sent away in our place. And now when we confess 
our faithlessness and our sin to him. He is faithful and just to forgive. He has to. Jesus was counted guilty instead of us. The nails of Jesus' death become the proof of love's secure hold on us. And what's more, it's not, as Ezra says, for a brief moment. It's forever. We've got it so much better than the people of Israel in Ezra's day had it. But not only a secure hold, verse 9, Ezra says that the Lord has extended his steadfast love. Even as they were enslaved to the Babylonians and now to the Persians, God has not forsaken his people. That there is even still a people, that there is even a remnant to begin with, he says, is proof that God is for us, that his steadfast love has not left us. The Jesus Storybook Bible calls it his never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. There is not a hint of an exit strategy in the love of God. The fullest and clearest display of God's steadfast love wouldn't arrive on the scene for several hundred years. But in the person and work of Jesus Christ, God has shown himself firmly committed to guilty sinners. Not only that, but Ezra says in both of these verses that we receive a reviving from this work of God. It's a rebirth. It's making what has been dead and stale and sterile into something that's alive and fruitful and full of energy. Because there's work to do. But just as the people in this passage, before we as a community tackle the work of setting up houses of our God through church planting, or before we begin to repair the ruins of our city through ministries of mercy, we have to do what they did here. We have to make confession and do his will. That was Ezra's call to Israel, and it is the gospel's call to us. As I finish, I want you to look at, again at the assurance of pardon. And there the Apostle John says, when we confess, God forgives and cleanses. Doing his will means knowing his will. It means putting your life under his will, expressed in his word. And Ezra's words to the people in chapter 10, verse 11, make confession, do his will, separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. It reminded me of the words of John the Baptist, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. See, what motivated the people to confess and repent and move toward obedience was being reminded of what God had done to deliver them. Obedience always flows from gratitude. True obedience, heart obedience, from seeing and tasting the faithfulness of the Lord. And so to the extent that each of us, like Ezra here, set our hearts to study the Lord's word, to do it, and to teach it to those around us, we will then be able to faithfully be a priest to one another. We'll be able to attack and own faithlessness in each other. We'll be able to make confession and in turn do the will of the Lord Pursue obedience and all this because Jesus absorbed the immensity and enormousness of our guilt and faithlessness so that we could then know the majesty of his grace and have his faithfulness in turn. Let's pray that he would produce that same faithfulness in us uh, as we seek to accomplish the work he's given us uh, in our city and our world. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. And we pray this morning that you would please come and overwhelm, overcome our faithlessness, 
Help us to see where we've been captured by other things that have taken away our loyalty to you. Help us repent. Lord Jesus, we pray that your mighty work of salvation may be our hope and our stay. We pray that you'd make us a people who love your word, who as a community of faith seek to follow your word, seek to hold one another accountable to your word, and in turn help us to get the work that you have given us done as a body of people. Uh, And may you receive honor and glory, and as a result, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. With those words echoing in your mind and your heart as you go this morning, uh, receive this benediction. This is the promise that God forever is strong. He is with us. His steadfast love endures forever. That should be the fuel and the motivation for holy living individually and in our life together. So receive the benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.